You're listening to Kilometer Zero by The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene, From ancient grudge break to new mutiny Where civil blood makes civil hands unclean It's a matter of fact that uh, the Giro was designed for Moser Absolutely, categorically, he was Italy's favourite Torriani was, a, was a, nothing if not a pragmatist Moser was pushed and, and was fined for being pushed on Tonale There is a story that his brother, Diego Moser, also drafted him on a motorbike on Palade, I think, Paso Palade. So there was stuff that went on that wasn't... Uh, Moser had uh, d different fuel, we know this. Um, Moser had a far better bike, he had a, a time trial bike with lenticular wheel. So lots of things conspired against Fignon and, you know, by extension, also Vizentini. Has, has a very strong sense of identity, community, and ethos. Part, I mean, partly this, this is true of many small Italian cities. They have their own dialect. And you go there and you immediately sort of move into a, into a Veronese mindset. You, you feel you're moving into, into a, a different world. Tre chilometri dalla conclusione c'è Moser in leggera difficoltà. The story of the 1984 Giro d'Italia has always really fascinated me because it taps into many of the clichés and stereotypes that spring to mind when we think about Italian sport, you know, passion, partisanship and even mild skullduggery. The 1984 Giro finished with a time trial that took the riders right into the centre of Verona, finished in the Roman amphitheatre, And it was almost like a football crowd greeting the riders on the final day. And it was the culmination of a duo that had been hand-drawn by the formidable race director Vincenzo Torriani to suit one particular rider. Verona is, of course, the setting for Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And there's something almost Shakespearean about the two great rivalries in Italian cycling history. First came Coppi and Bartoli in the 40s and 50s. And in the late 70s and 80s, Italy was gripped by the rivalry between Francesco Moser and Giuseppe Soroni. In a way, it was Montagues and Capulets on bikes. Soroni had won the Giro twice in 1979 and 1983, and Moser had won Paris-Roubaix three times in a row. He'd won the Giro di Lombardia, the World Championships, the Italian National Championships, and in January 1984, he broke Eddie Merckx's World Hour record, which had stood since 1972. And he broke it twice in the space of five days. Then in March, he finally won Milano Sanremo. Only the Giro was missing from a very impressive role of honour. He'd been on the podium three times, but victory had eluded him. And by 1984, he was almost 33. By this time, all of Italy, including crucially Torriani, was willing him to win the Giro. But this duo didn't shake down into a showdown between Moser and Soroni. Instead, there was a challenge from the French rider Laurent Fignon, who had won the Tour de France at the first attempt the previous year. 
On my way home from the Giro, I dropped in to see Herbie Sykes in his adopted hometown of Torino. Herbie's written a number of very fine books, including Giro 100, which celebrated the 100th edition of the race, and a history of Italy's most successful football team, Juventus, called, appropriately enough, Juve. I found out from Herbie that the thing about Moser's Giro victory was that it was a decade in the making. In 1975, Gimondi is uh, towards the end, and Italy needs a new Gimondi. It, Italian cycling, Gazzetta dello Sport, the Italian cycling industry, has need of a standard bearer, okay? And that looks like Moser. Torriani designs a Giro in 75 that will favour um, Italian climbers because everybody's had enough, frankly, of Eddie winning the Giro. He's won five of these things now and, and they want for somebody else to win it. And so the Giro concludes at the top of the Stelvio. Battalini's here now, Baronkelli is here now, these Italian climbers, and they conceivably might give Merckx a problem. So he designs a Giro d'Italia in 1975 to favour the climbers, the guys that, that might unseat Eddie. Moser effectively boycotts that Giro d'Italia, goes to the Tour de France instead, which at the time is unheard of for an Italian, okay, it's a kind of, almost a heresy, but wins the opening time trial, takes the yellow jersey and retains it for a week or 10 days, I can't remember, and actually becomes the pin-up boy of Italian cycling in so doing. Yeah, He's already Maria Tricolore, and he's the coming man. He's going to replace Gimondi, as I say, as the standard bearer. Torriani recognises the, the love affair the Italian public has with him and starts to design the Giro d'Italia accordingly. He can't afford it for, for, uh, for, for, for Moser not to be at the Giro d'Italia. And Moser has effectively gone on strike. He's, he's, he's effectively issued an ultimatum to Torriani. He said, OK, design a Giro that I can win or at least be competitive in. Otherwise, I'm just not coming. And so that's the beginning, if you like, of this 10-year quest for Moser to reach the promised land. It was a kind of a crossover between, if you like, the heroic cycling, bread and water, maybe amphetamine. So, so Moser was, was, was kind of dragged cycling, kicking and screaming into the scientific age, if you like. But no, Moser is, uh, is the Italian's... Certainly those that lived that moment, they idolised Moser. And cycling was a really big sport as a consequence of Moser and as a consequence of Saroni. It was a very Italian, they didn't ride. They, Moser famously won Paris-Roubaix three times on the spin, but seldom rode abroad, seldom rode the Tour de France. Saroni probably rode the Tour de France at the fag end of his career. But it was big. I mean, they, they, this splenetic rivalry between them, which, was, which actually was really quite caustic, and they meant it, it wasn't constructed or manufactured, um, it really enthused the Italian public. Cycling was really popular as a result. And of course, Moser is very likeable. He's very folksy. Uh, Saroni was a, would, would, was a sprinter, so... And he was perceived as being what the Italians call scaltro, which is quite clever and a bit, uh, bit cunning. Moser was just this big, was a machine. I mean, he was really, really strong. So it all, it all just worked. It was a, a cycling paradigm that, that, that absolutely enthused the Italian public. And it was, uh, yeah, they, they felt they loved Moser. Broadly speaking, Saroni knew that if he stayed on, he would win the sprint. 
it's overly simplistic, but fundamentally that's it. Neither of them were great climbers, which explains the so-called Giri of the Tunnels. In that period between, let's say, 1979 and 1984, the, the Giro was, this is a very mountainous country, but somehow Torriani, in the main, managed to avoid those mountains because the Italian public wanted an Italian winner. Of course they did. Fundamentally, Saroni was faster and uh, Moser was stronger. As often as not, Moser would tow him to the finish because, of course, he needed to get to, get to be shot of the guy because he knew that if he wasn't and if he couldn't, then that in all probability, Saroni would, would pilfer the, the sprint. Moser was much the more popular, much the more popular of the two. Uh, Saroni suffered a lot at the hands of the Tifosi. There, is a, there, there are many stories of him being in tears at the end of races. But they understood the mutual value. They both very well understood that they could monetize this thing as well. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was, it was, it played itself out every day in the newspapers, you know, in the Gazzetta dello Sport, in Tutto Sport, in Bici Sport. It was a big thing. People were well disposed towards Fignon. He won the Tour de France twice. There was the whole professor kind of uh, persona around him. And... There was people enjoyed this perception of conniving Italians. There is some stereotyping goes on there as regards Moser, and and you know, and some of it is justifiable. Fundamentally, though, he lost the Giro d'Italia because Moser knew how to win that Giro d'Italia. He engine, but the, the the genius, if you like, of Moser, going back to the, the Giro as distinct to the Tour. Was that it was ten years in the making that Giro d'Italia? It didn't happen in a vacuum, yeah. So all Moser was a very very smart guy in that respect. So he'd had them remake the Giro d'Italia for him, and eventually, as we say, he reached the promised land. Eighty nine, I don't know so very much about, but seemingly again the bike was in, was 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 determinant in in him failing to win that race as well. So um, so seemingly the Fignon maybe didn't learn so very much, but there we go. Still gassing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Supersapiens. Hey all, it's Sam Brand uh, from Team Nova Nordisk checking in again. Uh, today was the final stage, stage five, the queen stage. Um, three big climbs, the biggest in the middle at um, sort of 19K, 18.5K at 5%. So it was a big one. Um, because of the weather at the top, they had to actually neutralize for eight kilometers. So the first eight kilometers, they took time. They took uh, numbers and then reset us off. Uh, so 8K down the descent. Unfortunately, I had a little bit of an off uh, on the descent, but uh, these things happen. Part of cycling, managed to get back up and, and roll into the finish. And uh, David was up there. So um, being able to support him as long as I could into the 18K climb, and my legs felt great. Um, super happy, you know, when we come to Greece, when we go to any race and um, we're there to drive change in diabetes and I feel that this race we've had some fantastic results uh, with Andrea in the sprints and David on the climbs and I've been able to support in both of those uh, scenarios so for me it's really good progress um, some fantastic results for us in this race and we want to push on you know and show what's possible with diabetes now it's time to go and uh, 
quickly shower, pack bikes, and head off to uh, the airport. It's about 300k, so a few hours. But I'll, I'll check in later on when uh, we arrive. And the, it's all a bit um, raw at the moment. I'll have a chance to process everything that's happened today uh, through this journey, and then I'll check in later on. But thank you very much for the support. Before anyone grumbles and groans about there being too much football in the cycling podcast, I think it's worth bearing in mind that football and cycling really are twin sporting passions in Italy, or at least they used to be. The passion and fervour of the terraces transfers to the mountains as the football season winds down and the Giro d'Italia takes over in the consciousness of the Italian sporting public. We'll get back to the way the 1984 Giro d'Italia was stacked in Francesco Moser's favour a little bit later on, but thinking about this year's Giro, it struck me when the route was announced just how many big football towns and cities the race visited this year, and that was slightly unusual, in recent years at least. Napoli, Parma, Genoa, Torino, Verona, all big football towns or cities. I suppose it's been the Giro di Calcio. I did wonder whether Mauro Venni's desire to push the Giro back a week in the calendar might be motivated by something more than just a desire to take the race into the higher mountains. As Herbie Sykes said when we were talking, cancelled stages are bad for business and the weather in the mountains can be difficult in May. Moving the race back a week might make it less risky to take in more of the 2,000 metre plus passes. But I wondered whether Venue's desire has something to do with football too, because there's this clash with the Giro, and cycling struggles a bit to be heard. Daniel said earlier in the race that many members of the general public, and even casual sports fans with a passing interest in cycling, may struggle to name more than one cyclist, and that rider being Vincenzo Nibali, of course, who will retire at the end of this season. Also, as we heard in our earlier episode of Kilometre Zero, which looked at the influence of La Gazzetta della Sport, cycling is kind of diminished in the eyes of the general public in Italy these days. Most days you have to flick through to about page 30 just to get to the cycling, and before that there's page after page of football coverage. And that's because the Giro today takes place in the shadow of Serie A. On Sunday, the stage won by Giulio Ciccone, Attention was divided between football and cycling because the Scudetto was up for grabs, the Italian Championship. Milan and their big city rivals, Inter, were both playing. And in fact, the games kicked off while the Giro stage was still going on. Back in 1984, the football season ended on May the 6th and the Giro started 11 days later. And that gave cycling the full attention of the country's sports fans. Football, like cycling, has had a tough time in Italy too. The Calciopoli scandal, which stemmed from an investigation into match-fixing and bribery, broke in May 2006, almost exactly at the same time as Operation Puerto, the blood-doping scandal, broke in cycling. That scandal eventually took down Italy's Ivan Basso, who'd won the Giro by nine minutes and was kicked off the Tour de France on the eve of the race. Football doesn't seem to have struggled quite so much as a result of its scandal. Juventus, the most successful of all Italy's clubs, was stripped of a league title and relegated to the second division because of these match-fixing allegations. Milan, Fiorentina and Lazio were also implicated and punished too. But football has endured perhaps because, since then, Italy has won the World Cup and the European Championships, although crucially they haven't qualified for this winter's World Cup. Cycling has, by comparison, bumped along a bit. 
With the Giro d'Italia finishing in Verona, just as it did in 1984, it brought to mind a book by Tim Parks. I'm sorry, it is a football book. It's called A Season with Verona. And Tim moved to Italy in the early 80s. And in the 90s, he spent a whole season following Verona home and away. And he wrote a very fine book, which, I mean, it's much more than a football book. It really gets under the skin of Italy and Verona in particular. And it struck me when rereading that book recently that a football season, very much like a Grand Tour, is a fantastic way to learn about the ins and outs, the intricacies of a country and its people. I spoke to Tim about his impressions of Verona. I came to Italy with uh, my then uh, Italian wife. Um, we settled in Verona because she had a brother. And, and, you know, I lived there for pretty, mu- pretty much 30 years in Verona. It was 81 when we arrived, and um, it was one of the last big uh, terrorist events. The Red Brigades had kidnapped an American general, General Dozier, right in Verona. So it was, um, when we arrived, there was a heavy police presence. And Verona is a very beautiful, a a really very beautiful town, Uh, relatively small, about 250,000, 270,000 People, it has a wonderful ancient city center nestling in a meander of the river Adige with hills sort of on the northern side of the river um, and the flat uh, North Italian plain the other side. So, you know, it's it's a really, uh, it would be difficult to exaggerate what a, an elegant and pretty place it is. Uh, later, I discovered that it was uh, that it had a reputation for racism and fascism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But certainly, on arrival, one hardly one one would hardly imagine such things. You know, I mean, to an English eye in the early 1980s, um, brought up in the wind and the rain, <laughs> it looked a pretty good place. My, my whole ambition with writing originally was to write novels and to write serious novels, and I, and I have done that, I think. I'd written a couple of books about Italy that had, that had gone well at, at years of distance. And once in the stadium, it, you know, I think it was one of those, those classic cases where you've got Neapolitans and Veronese insulting each other in their traditional ways, and you get a strong feeling of the opposition of South and North. I just thought, you know, this is interesting. This would be fun stuff to write about. And it gave me a huge excuse for for going all over Italy and and uh, traveling traveling with the fans who are also famous, or they were famous, for being particularly uh, unpleasant and aggressive, although I had never particularly found them that way. And that, that was a big novelty for me. So So you're sort of flying by the seat of your pants. You know, you go to a game, maybe travel overnight uh, on a bus with a load of, <laughs> you know, half of the nutcases, uh, have a pretty wild weekend, and then come back, try and put some order into it, try and write about it, the, the, the game, and also write about what was going on in Italy that year. It was an election year. It was a Berlusconi year. Um and and then there'd be the next game and the next and you know and then Verona almost getting relegated and you think oh god it's going to be a depressing book about relegation and um, all kinds of things happened in Verona that year well, I was very fortunate really and there was also and this is 
uh, a rather uglier thing in Italy, which has perhaps improved a little bit, but not much, is that the police were deeply complicit in in a lot of the bad things that did happen, and a lot of the violence that did occur, um, were uh, were quite clearly caused as much by the police as by the fans. I mean, you know, sometimes it seemed that the police were just a, another sort of uh, another group of aggressors among among the various groups. So all that was kind of interesting in giving you a sense of, for example, how <coughs> how completely unaccountable the police are in Italy for for all kinds of stuff. You know, I, in fact, I learned to be quite anxious about about the police when I was uh, when I was going to these games. And and this is kind of stuff that you can't say in Italy. Like I couldn't. In an interview with Italian TV or something, I, I, I wouldn't say what I'm saying now. Yeah, I remember the 1984 Giro because I remember them re-asphalting all the roads that go over the Torricelli, the hills north of the city, uh, where I was traveling around doing a lot of teaching because I was teaching various rich people in their, in their villas and the hills, and they they did a wonderful job turning the hills into smooth, turning the roads into super smooth uh, biking roads. The 84 Giro was loaded in Moser's favour, undeniably. There were two long time trials, one in Milan and the final one in Verona. Moser punctured during the Milan one and still hammered Fignon. The mountain stages were designed to give him as much of a chance as possible and the route earned the nickname the Giro of the Tunnels because they went through the mountains rather than over them so often. One of the Italian riders, Roberto Vicentini, claimed that as soon as Moser was dropped, cars and motorbikes would fill the gaps and help pace him back up to his rivals. The narrative that has been um, pursued over the years is that Torriani so wanted Moser to win that they took the Stelvio out. It's absolutely a matter of fact that he wanted Moser to win, but Stelvio was 75 kilometres from the stage finish and he's going to get back on. In all probability, he's going to get back on because he was easily the best descender in the world at the time. So the, 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 the issue there is the replacement stage should have... Uh, they probably should have done Aprica. They should have... Uh, they, so the replacement stage was too easy, really, and that disadvantaged Fignon. But uh, if they do Stelvio, they positioned it centre stage specifically because they want for Moser to get back on. He would have got back on. So I, I don't, objectively, that's not made any significant material difference. The Blockhouse stage, for example, they only went halfway up Blockhouse and they did that for a reason. They wanted Moser to win. But that's absolutely fine because they're at liberty to, de- to design. The Giro d'Italia is a commercial construct and everybody in Italy wants Moser to win. He's just done the hour record. He's finally won Milano Sanremo. He's never won the Giro d'Italia. And, there's a, uh, and there are 50 million people that, that want very much for him to win the Giro d'Italia. And it's within their gift to design in the way that, you know, uh, uh, cricket pitches are designed... Uh, in a certain way to uh, to help spinners or seamers or whatever else that you know Torriani effectively was doing the same thing there was a big um, Italy wanted for Moser to win the Giro d'Italia so um, it was a bit it's a bit unbecoming uh, the blood 
transfusions are questionable, but not illegal. Morally, they're questionable, but they weren't illegal, so they didn't transgress any any rules in that respect. Uh, and Italy got what Italy wanted, which was Moser in the Maglia Rosa. Laurent Fignon had detected with good reason that things were stacked against him. And he wrote about the 1984 Giro in his autobiography, which was published not long before he died in 2010. He sensed that the Italians were ganging up on him. He wrote, Moser just kept on getting better. He was brimming with confidence, like all the Italian riders, who had declared their loyalty to His Majesty and were doing the spade work for him at every opportunity. As soon as a gap opened, an Italian would jump forwards to lend him a hand, whether or not he was in Moser's team. But it was the cancellation of the Stelvio stage, where Fignon could have hoped to make up a lot of time on Moser, that really rankled. Guimard protested as strongly as he could, but in vain. Torriani erased the Stelvio from the stage and dreamed up a replacement route which was unworthy of the race's reputation. Fignon wanted to take the race to Moser by attacking a long way out, which he did do, but Moser had some other assistance. Chains of Tifosi had lined the coals to push him up. The referees helped as well by fining me 20 seconds for taking a feed outside the permitted area. Moser simply had to win. And then came the final time trial into Verona. 42 kilometres, pan flat, flat as a pancake, said Fignon, made for Moser. Shortly before the start, when I saw he would be riding a bike like the one he had used for the hour record, I worked out that I was probably done for. We had estimated that the machine was worth about two seconds per kilometre. Knowing that I would lose probably a minute on him, even if he used a normal bike, it was easy to do the math. But then came the allegation that a helicopter, a TV helicopter, had assisted Moser and hindered Fignon. What made it harder to stomach, wrote Fignon, was the fact that the pilot of the helicopter with the television cameras was particularly keen to do his job to the best of his ability by coming as close as he could to get pictures of me, even though he was almost mowing the number off my back with his rotor blades. Obviously, the turbulence he caused pushed enough wind at me to slow me down a fair bit. Two or three times I came close to crashing and shook my fist at him. Guimard was beside himself with rage. So was I. Now, as Herbie Sykes says, Fignon first raised this complaint about the helicopter getting too close in an interview with a French newspaper in 1985. It wasn't something he complained about at the time, so perhaps he was retrofitting his excuses. Nevertheless, it's a story of collusion that has taken hold, particularly, as Herbie says, in the English-speaking media. And it's become the counterpoint to the Italian version of the story, which is of the heroic Francesco Moser Giro victory. There's no doubt Moser was at the cutting edge of science on two fronts. Firstly, aerodynamics. While Fignon rode a standard road bike in the Verona time trial, Moser's bike had two solid disc wheels, or lenticular wheels, as Herbie Syke calls them, because they were shaped a bit like a lentil. He also had cowhorn handlebars, enabling to adopt a lower, more aerodynamic position, very similar to the one he'd used to break the hour record. The bike was one thing, the blood transfusions were another, because Moser was working with Francesco Conconi and his protégé Michele Ferrari, he of Lance Armstrong infamy, of course. They were at the forefront of sports science, but some of that science strayed into the darker arts. Moser underwent blood transfusions for his attack on the hour record. 
It should be stressed that although the technique was morally questionable and not publicised at the time, it was not actually banned in cycling until the following year. Basically, a quantity of blood was removed in advance and then put back in shortly before the race, and the benefits were twofold. First of all, the body compensated for losing the blood, creating more red blood cells, and then, of course, the additional blood that had initially been removed boosted those levels higher, therefore improving performance. They weren't doing anything that was prescribed, okay, but they never actually admitted what they were doing. So technically what they were doing was absolutely fine because there was no, uh, there was no um, UCI, no, no law against it, but morally it was questionable. So they were doing all sorts of really clever stuff with, 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 with uh, threshold, with altitude, all sorts of clever stuff they were doing. They were brilliant, these people. Um, but they never once mentioned the transfusions and that and that's because they knew in their gut that it was what they were doing was questionable morally if not technically legally call it what you will Moser had worked with a, a Polish guy a guy named Zmuda uh, Polish sport had been very successful in the 70s the football has done extremely well famously become, been, been third in the in the World Cup the athlete Polish sport was in the ascendancy this guy seemingly came over and spent some time with, with, with Moser. And again, this is not really written anywhere, but it's, it's been alluded to um, quite significantly. That may have been the genesis of this thing. But in effect, yes, uh, he'd, uh, Enovit had this team of very skilled doctors, physicians, and they were transfusing blood uh, and increasing his hematocrit. Uh, and so it was the beginning of what became blood doping, if you like. Cycling has changed a lot since 1984, and the Giro d'Italia especially so. It makes me wonder whether something similar could happen again, because purely in terms of their style and their attributes on the bike, Filippo Ganna is the closest thing Italian cycling has to Francesco Moser today. Ganna is already a star. He's tall, stylish, charismatic and charming. And he's even announced he's going to have a crack at the hour record in Switzerland in August this year. Could there be a day when Mauro Venni might be tempted to design a course entirely to suit Ghana, dial down the big mountains, place the iconic climbs early on in stages and schedule 100 plus kilometres of time trialling? It seems unlikely, mainly because the Giro is now trying to appeal to an international audience and probably social media wouldn't take kindly to a race route being unveiled that was stacked so obviously in favour of a home rider. It strikes me that this is getting close to the heart of the Giro's struggle to straddle these two worlds. It wants a return to the glory days of Italian cycling for its domestic audience, but Veni is also courting the likes of Tade Pogacar and Matthew van der Poel because he craves the endorsement of foreign stars to help show that the Giro is truly a global event. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 